Hello and welcome to the Vulture TV Podcast. I'm your host, Gazelle Amami. On this week's show, we're talking HBO's High Maintenance and Netflix's Easy, two shows that are bringing a short film aesthetic to television. Plus, High Maintenance Director of Photography, Dalmar Weaver-Madsen, joins us to talk about filming an episode of TV from the perspective of a dog. That's coming up, but first, if you have any questions for us or ideas for topics you'd like to hear, leave us a voicemail at 646-504-7673 or email us at tvquestions at vulture.com. I'm here with New York Magazine TV critic Matt Zoller-Seitz. Hi, Gazelle. Hi, Matt. And Vulture TV columnist Jen Cheney. Hey, Jen. Hello, everyone. Hello. um, it's been a long day there may be periodic unmotivated giggling in this podcast (laughs) it's been a long two weeks it's a it's It's you know this is a this is a crazy time of year for us yeah we're all feeling a little loopy but i always feel sorry for the for the new shows that air in like october or or november because by that point i'm just in a bad mood (laughs) Just a bad oh. mood. Like they got to seriously jump through hoops to make me happy. Oh man! I think if they came a couple of weeks earlier, it would have been you know more in their favor. Uh-huh. These are two. These are these are uh, tales out of school, by the way, folks. <laughs> I'm supposed to be detached and objective, but you know, I don't know. it's a fallacy. Yeah, it's that notion. Hmm. <laughs> um. Yeah. So you know, two shows that premiered in September, luckily, and I think Matt had liked them both. They came earlier in the season. Uh, we have ha- High Maintenance and Easy. Yes. And both great shows. Yeah, very interesting. Very interesting, doing different things. And they have something in common in that they're both doing a kind of shorter type of storytelling. High Maintenance particularly, if we're talking just short, like each episode includes two episodes. Right, it's based <laughs> on a web series. Yeah, so it kind of has that web series feel, which is very much a short film feel. These are indie filmmakers. Right. And Joe Swanberg's Easy, you know, his episodes are more traditional 30-minute length. Yeah, like, yeah, 25 and change. Right. But, you know, same idea. Each episode takes on a new story, Mm -hmm. a new set of characters. Kind of a more old-school anthology series. Is that right? This is how anthology series used to be done back in the day? Well, yes and no. I mean, there have been... uh, Recently, when we think of anthology series, we think of series where the unit of measure is the season, where they have one long-form story that they tell over the course of, you know, 8, 10, 12, however many episodes, and then they're done. And then they sort of reboot the whole series, and there may be something thematically similar, or there might be some continuity of place and mythology, I guess you'd say, like on Fargo, but but it's a long-form game still. It's basically you're looking at a bunch of sibling miniseries, really. But anthology used to mean something different. The unit of measure was the episode. And, of course, you know, there's too many to list here, but some of the big ones are The Twilight Zone, The Outer Limits, Alfred Hitchcock Presents, and shows like that. But what I think is different about these shows, in particular High Maintenance and Easy, is that, well, there's two things. One is there's no genre hook. It's not horror and it's not science fiction. And uh, whereas all the stories on The Twilight Zone had an element of that kind of Ray Bradbury, O. Henry storytelling, and there was often a supernatural or science fictional element to it, there's nothing like that on these shows. And the other thing that's interesting about it is that there's not even any connective device. On the way over here, I was trying to think of other shows that are like these well, and I couldn't con- come up with anything. Well, high maintenance does have a connected device. They do, right? they do. So it's so it doesn't really count either. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely more disconnected than a lot of shows. Like 
the weed dealer is basically like it's like an, a Robert Altman film. Like in Nashville, you have a bunch of uh, stories that are joined together only by the fact that they're occurring in the same city at roughly the same time, and then they have this sound truck that's driving through the film and occasionally broadcasting electoral messages for this uh, Hal Philip Walker, this you know independent candidate. <laughs> and, um, Altman always had things like that. Like in the movie Shortcuts, he had these helicopters that were spraying for fruit flies. And um, I, I think in his movie uh, Cookie's Fortune, it may, I feel like it might have been an ice cream truck. Maybe I'm remembering that wrong. But there's always something that gets you from mm -hmm. short, you know, a, a bunch of interlocking short stories. There's always something that gets you from short story to short story. And um, high maintenance, it's, you know, it's a guy dealing weed. There have been other miniseries that don't have a, a genre hook that, that uh, did something similar like this Robert Altman series Gun, which was a gun. It was the gun. It was like, who has the gun this week? There was a horror kind of Western anthology series, I think on Showtime, called Dead Man's Gun. But even there, you have the Dead Man's Gun. Who's mm -hmm. got the Dead Man's Gun this week? They don't do that on Easy. Right. Easy feels kind of more like those omnibus films like New York, I Love You. Very much so. Where I'm, I'm trying to, but I don't think, I'm trying to think of Easy and where it's set. It's Chicago. It's Chicago. It's yeah. all in Chicago, right? It's all in Chicago, although we'll get maybe we'll get to this in more detail later, but there's an episode of that show that uh, reminds me very much of my favorite episode of New York Stories, Life Lessons, which is the uh, Richard Price wrote and Martin Scorsese directed, and it stars Nick Nolte as an aging painter who feels that he's basically he's losing his artistic power and his potency, and he's got a young girlfriend, and he's terrified that she's going to leave him because he's too old. And uh, there's a Mark Maron section of, of uh, Easy, an episode where it's not exactly the same story, but some of the same issues are mm -hmm. raised. That's not right. You can't just put my... You, 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 it's like date rape. You, what, it's like a it's roofie like picture. Date rape? It is kind of, isn't it? So like, I, I like guess I'm you don't like the work? Here. Calm down. I'm not going to calm down. It's like my ass is hanging out. You didn't ask me if that... That's my house. You were in there. I was sweeping. Okay, I didn't know me, you were taking that picture. It's just rude. What does it mean? Did you draw me? Yeah, I drew you. Huh. But I, I didn't put did you, it up. I didn't tweet it. Me, I didn't put you it up. Did you permission? No, but I didn't do anything so, with and it. And it might end up in a book, right? Yeah, but, but, Maybe but it's 12 gonna years up. later, but eventually. That's not the point. What does that mean? There's no story to that. That's just sort of like, look, There's I fucked this guy and he's story. sleeping. This is my life. Look at this Wait, do you have guy. an issue with the guy? I, no, no. I mean, I'll, how many are there? You got a whole phone full of this shit? Are you trying to slut shame No, I'm not trying to slut shame you. Why don't you return my text? My privacy is public. Yeah, but mine isn't. Uh, I don't think that's true. What do you think? privacy is dead and you were one of the first people to do that. Yeah. Oh, well, that's very flattering, but you know, I think that's that's not the same fucking thing. I wish more shows did this. I feel like it's not popular to do this. I but. mean, it feels like I don't know what your thoughts are. I mean, we've seen TV change a lot in the last however many years. We've seen thirty-minute dramas. We've seen episode counts go from twenty-two, twenty-three episodes to thirteen to ten to even six. Yeah, and. Even the length of episodes has gone from, you know, your 40, 45-minute drama to an, an hour long. Like, Mr. Robot is pretty much always closer to an hour than not, I would say. Yeah, I, they've been, they kept it, I think they kept it pretty tight in the back half, maybe, because yeah. people were complaining during the front <laughs> half. But, uh, yeah, and, but, and, and also there are shows that go mega long, like Sons of Anarchy used to do, where right. they do these blowout episodes that fill the two-hour time slot, and... You know, unfortunately, a lot of that was montages of people riding to bad covers of the Eagles. But, you know, that was their that was their jam. And that's what they did. Yeah. It seems obvious that you could use this format in any way you want. But we kind of haven't for many years. Now suddenly you're like, oh, people are having 
a little more fun with it. It's the internet. It's the internet. It's the internet. It's totally the internet. It's yeah, I feel like it's it's anag- analogous to what you see happening and has happened with like print versus online media where, you know, you had to write your story to a certain length and still do when you're writing in print because there's only a certain amount of space. And with network television, there was only a certain amount of time and there were a certain number of commercials. And with other shows that aren't on network television, that's just not true anymore. So you're not bound by these pre-existing structures. It's really up to the creator to decide what the right length of this is, assuming that, of course, whatever they're streaming on or whatever, you know, cable network they're working with is going to allow them to go long or go short. Um, So I just think it it gives a a lot more artistic license, but I think that can be a good thing and a bad thing because as, as you just said, like sometimes these episodes go too long for just no reason and they really need an editor to kind of ratchet it back a little bit. But I kind of like the fact that there aren't these quote unquote rules around it anymore. Yeah. It changes the storytelling too, when you're not bound by these rules that we've created in terms of how you tell stories. That's one thing that I think is true of both easy and high maintenance is they're not following this typical structure, plot-driven structure. It's more character-driven, and it, is. it leaves you with more of a feeling than it does with any kind of ending. It's like a, it's, it's a sketch. It's like yeah. a series of sketches. It's not a bunch of finished paintings. It's sketches, and that's okay, and I think the format can support that, especially when they're breaking a half an hour into smaller blocks. And that's one of the beautiful things about – this new age of TV is that, as Jen was saying, we're not dealing with broadcasters and cable channels here. We're not dealing with regularly scheduled commercial breaks. Like the the amount of discipline, we don't think about it because we watch TV and we're used to the rhythms. But think about the amount of discipline that it takes to get every act of an hour-long show down to like 12 hours and 23 minutes or something like that. When you have to adhere to that kind of segmented format, things get lost. Like there are times where you're trying to fit something into an, uh, what they call an act and you're losing things that you may think are essential or that you would rather occurred in that act and you didn't have to reshuffle them and find a place for them in a subsequent act. Like that kind of thing happens all the time or so editors tell me. And um, if you don't have those kind of constraints, you can just sort of let things flow more and, and just have a more intuitive sense of how to tell the story. Do you consider Black Mirror to be kind of in this vein of storytelling i don't know that's tricky somebody brought that up online with me and i didn't know what i didn't know how to classify it i mean it is more of an anthology but it's not necessarily a a short film in the same way that you know high maintenance has that kind of like you said two stories interconnection that's that's a different type of thing to me it feels like a different type of storytelling Mm -hmm. so i can't quite put my finger on it but it doesn't feel like it's the same thing well almost like you know kieslowski's the decalogue Mm -hmm. which is you know the ten commandments commandment by commandment (laughs) (laughs) you know and each one is its own story yeah i feel like you know in order to talk about this like it's helpful to go back to louis just in terms of the type of storytelling he pioneered a bit yeah i would say he perfected it i'm struck by how many shows that are on the air that have just come on the air that are in some way um taking that ground that louis broke and planting something new in it Mm-hmm. Like Atlanta and and Better Things, both on FX are examples of that. And those totally have the feeling of short stories. But it's a different kind of short story. You're not getting a new character in a new situation every week. You're getting, you know, a, a lead character that you follow. And each thing does seem to have a kind of integrity to it. Like, it, you don't feel like it's a serialized story where you mm-hmm. need to keep track of what happened last week to understand what's happening this week. But um, 
television's always been very good about staking out this middle ground between the novel and the short story. And there have even been some dramas that I think have alternated between the two, including um, – and this is actually something that my friend Andrew Johnston, who was the TV critic for Time Out in New York, wrote about a lot. The short story versus the novel is a model for television storytelling. And one, uh, two examples that he gave of hybrids were Mad Men and The Sopranos. Because The Sopranos, if you look at season one, say, of The Sopranos, it does feel all of a piece. But then by the time you get to season three, it feels more like, you know, it's like James Joyce's Dubliners, but with mobsters. <laughs> you know, like you see Tony, you see, you know, Polly, you see Carmela, but every episode of that season feels much more contained. Like, and they even have some episodes that really can stand alone, like Pine Barrens, one with the Russian in the woods. I'm working on a plan. Give me your shoes. I can go get help. Fuck you. You're not leaving me here. You don't trust me? It's stupid. Pitch dark out there. And what's your fucking plan? Eat catch your packs? We should have stopped the Roy Rogers. And I should have fucked the Elevens, but I didn't. What are those, Tic Tacs? I just found them. I didn't know I had them on me. You had Tic Tacs all along? Give me some. There ain't no more. I ate them. Selfish prick. I'm dying here. Now fucking die already. Can we talk a little bit about this idea of the one-off being a, being a primitive or inferior form of television? You mean in terms of the one-off episode? Yeah. yeah. Well, shows like Sherlock are not taken as seriously as shows that are serialized. They don't get seriously they, in what in what way? Well, as art, you know. I think if there's an mm -hmm. element of serialization, critics are more likely to take it seriously as art. I feel mm -hmm. like that's changing. Like, well, like Atlanta, for example, would you that consider that to be? serialized very very loosely right. to, the, to the point where you could maybe plausibly answer no right i mean there's some forward motion but that's not that's like if you made a list of the 10 things that show's concerned about i'm not it's sure that not, continuity would no. be on the list and i feel like that's right. pretty critically acclaimed at mm. least so far i don't know i i almost feel like things that aren't serial serialized are becoming more respected mm. i also feel like and we've talked about this before but i think people appreciate more and more, because there is so much TV, things that are more condensed. And mm -hmm. like, for example, the six episode arc. I was just talking with somebody earlier this week about Fleabag. And she was like, oh, I really loved watching that. And it was only six episodes. So I was able to get through it fairly quickly. And it, you know, it told its story exactly the way it needed to be told in that amount of time. And so mm -hmm. I feel like this idea that something that doesn't go on as long doesn't have as much artistic credibility. I think that's changing a lot because people just... They appreciate the conciseness of the storytelling. Well, we're critics and we can't watch all this yes. stuff. I mean, right. I totally sympathize. I had that feeling when I watched Love because I didn't like the show at all. But the fact that it was a 30 minute long binge versus an hour long one made me whip right through it way more quickly than I would have otherwise. Mm -hmm. And I don't know. I, I, I do think things are trending a little shorter. And yeah. that means a lot of things. It means in terms of. You know, an hour-long episode can feel like a slog. Maybe you don't want to sit down for an hour-long episode. It can also mean maybe you're more inclined to watch a six-episode season of Fleabag than you are to get invested in The Americans because that's a lot of catch-up to do. The relatively short length of both seasons of Catastrophe was a major factor in so many people taking my suggestion to watch it. <laughs> I'd say, like, if you've seen the show it's Catastrophe, short. it's fantastic. They're like, I don't need another show in my life. Yeah, but it's eight episodes. <laughs> oh, well, in six that case, episodes. Six episodes, that's right. Yes. Yeah. yeah. The Brits are very good at keeping things to six they episodes. They are. They were on to something. Yeah. <laughs> Damn it, Happy. All right. Oh. 
So the third episode of High Maintenance this season, Grandpa, is one of the more interesting episodes on television recently. Um, it's putting it mildly. Yeah. <laughs> and if you're just tuning in, it's all told from the perspective of a dog, Gatsby, who's recently moved to New York with his owner. And what makes it so interesting is how it's filmed in such a way where you're seeing everything through the eyes of the dog. And we're very excited to have Dalmar Weaver-Madsen, the DP of High Maintenance, here with us today to talk about how they filmed it. Dalmar, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Super excited to talk about something that I love. <laughs> Excellent. So just to start us off, how how did you guys find this dog? Because it's a really beautiful dog. <laughs> <laughs> it's an amazing dog, right? Um, well, we went to um, Bill Berloni, who's like an amazing dog trainer. We were like, you know, we have this special episode. We need a special kind of dog. Like, what kind of who, who? What's your what's your recommendation? We really just went to the man who knows dogs the best, basically. And he's like, there's one dog that's perfect for this, and it's Bodie. And you guys are gonna love this dog. And we met him, and he's really, really special. You know, like, you can tell he's a very smart dog. And sure enough, he was exactly what <laughs> what we needed. <laughs> so what's happening in these scenes when you're, first of all, when you're directing a dog, when, when you know, you're, when your main character's a dog, what's that like on the set? You're not going over and saying, you know, now, okay, well, let's do it again, but let's take it down about 10%. You know, it's obviously a different process. What's that like? Well, definitely, like, Ben and Katya and I um, really wanted to get into the POV of the dog and really try and unite the audience with the dog and experiencing what the dog is going through. And so mostly it becomes about how do we show what the dog is seeing without going to a straight POV and how do, and then you cut to the dog with a certain kind of energy and then that makes the audience infer something about what the dog might be thinking. And obviously there's a lot of like, music is helping with the tone or like different sound effects are helping you get the performance out of it but a lot of it has to do with like pacing like yeah you can't say take it down a notch but we can be like okay we if we have him run faster here or look faster this way so like using that as a way to control the emotional expression of the dog but on set, it's uh, it sounds a lot like, Bodhi, 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 look over here, look over here. <laughs> you know, like, it's a lot funnier than when you're being quiet. <laughs> was there a trainer then that was that was working with the dog in addition to you guys, or was it just you guys? Oh yeah, definitely. We had uh, we had a team of trainers actually, because um, the thing that I didn't know before working with the dog is like when you begin a shot with an animal, someone has to put the animal pointing them exactly which way you want them to go. So you have one trainer at the beginning. Anytime you want them to turn their head or look somewhere or go somewhere, you have another trainer. So some of our moves were comp- quite complex. We're using a steady cam. We need him to walk from one room into another, pause, look at something, look somewhere else. Like So we've hidden, we had to hide multiple trainers around the set. Um, wow. And Sometimes we're shooting with two cameras, so you're you're lighting for two cameras plus hiding trainers from both cameras, and then trying to to make it all seem like it's just happening. God, that's amazing! Wow. I never would have. That is amazing. I never would have thought that from looking at it. That's so. There's multiple trainers, and like every time, like if the dog is staring in a certain direction, and then it looks in a different direction, there's like a second trainer there who makes some kind of a motion or something like that. Yeah, the, he does cues with motions and also with sound. 
um, little squeaky toys. You can call his name. They would say like peanut butter. There's peanut butter also <laughs> something that you use to get a dog interested in certain things, like putting it in certain places. But I have to say also, it became almost like Bodie had a sixth sense for what we needed him to do um, because we would put trainers where we need them and he's doing the shot. And by the third one, he always had everything perfect. And Ben mm. and Katya and I would be watching the monitor and they'd be thinking, Oh, it'd be so great if he just turned his head now, but we, you know, don't have any more trainers or, you know, it's a new idea. And just magically he would do it. It was like, <laughs> he became psychically linked, to all of us, which was wow. pretty cool. <laughs> I, 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 I want to ask you about it. One shot in particular, and let me see if I can describe this shot without laughing. It's it's you're across the apartment. You're you're like the owner is in the foreground, the depressed owner, mm-hmm. and Bodie is in the background of the shot, like almost staring longingly out out a window. It's like an existential mid distance stare, like it's an Ingmar <laughs> Bergman film, and the dog is completely immobile. It's completely immobile, completely immobile, and it's like a really long shot. And then the dog turns around and looks over his shoulder, like. A passive aggressive look almost <laughs> how many ta- how did you do that how, and and how many takes did it take to get that incredible like you know Steve Buscemi at the end of his rope look over the shoulder you know? I I have to say like Bodie he was always like pretty close on his first take but definitely by take three you know he's like his magic number he would definitely get it um I, I, with the looking out the window and stuff, we definitely had someone hiding out that window, <laughs> helping uh, from another room, leaning out to get, to get his attention. He's very much a people person. Um, so that, that, but the look, I feel like he's picking up on the vibe that was going around on set, <laughs> you know, chiming in. What were your conversations like with Ben and Katya about, you know, how you would use the camera to get across what the dog's personality is and what's going on in his head and just... You know, what What were the kind of parts of him that you wanted to come across to the viewer? Well, we definitely wanted um, the viewer to really identify with the dog. Um, one of the reasons we made the strong choice for the, most of the introduction of the episode, you don't really see anybody else but Bodhi. So he becomes like your main focus and you really hone in on him. Um, we talked a lot about when you're first falling in love with someone and you're noticing small details about them or like, mm. you know, these like little little things you might notice. Um, and we incorporated that into how he sees Beth when he first sees her and then also when he's like listening to her talk on the phone to the guy later in the episode. Um, we also were thinking about how dogs perceive the world because like a lot of it is has to do with sound and smell their vision actually isn't that good so we were like if we shoot these povs from the dog more like close in on stuff that that would make sound or you're it's almost like you're focusing on a detail that would make a sound or be a smell that that was part of our thinking we also you know when we went back and watched like beethoven and turner and hooch and all these fun amazing like dog movies from like the 80s and a lot of them, well, one enough, they're so much fun. But two, a lot of them have these like wide angle doggy POV shots that look around. And we knew we definitely never wanted to do that. Um, our show has, it's pretty loose and it lets each episode be its own thing. But there are some rules we kind of follow and we don't really do like a straight POV. So we wanted to find how can we see what the dog's seeing but still root it in the dog. So we just made sure that. The camera's always, like, 
behind the dog and you can see him in the foreground so you're seeing what he's seeing but you're still like feeling like you're with him and you're seeing him experience it so you're like getting into his pov (laughs) but without going to those like wide angle doggy cams you know I'm curious to know, like, at what point um, in the process were you aware that you were going to have to shoot the episode entirely from the dog's point of view? Like, was the script already written and then Ben and Katya came to you and said, hey, this is what we want you to do? Or how did it work? They came to me and they were like, we have an exciting episode for you. They know that I'm a big animal lover. Yeah. <laughs> they know that I love animals and nature. And they were like, I think that might have been part of it. Um, but... They, they were like, we want to do this episode from, you know, from the dog. Like, the dog is the main character. And, like, I think it was in their very conception of it, they knew they wanted to go from this POV. And I was really excited. And I, I at first was like, oh, but we should see what he's seeing because dogs, like, look at faces a lot, you know. But by holding back on that, it makes it so special when you, when you see him connect with Beth and you really see her for the first time the first look at her and felt like falling <laughs> in love. That's know? amazing. There's like, there's a close up of the dog in this thing. I swear, I swear, I felt like I was watching Nick Nolte in Life Lessons. <laughs> it was unreal. It was like, it was like a, you know, an entire doggy consciousness in there. Yeah. He really has human eyes. He's really, he's, he's really emotive. And I have to say the, the hardest part of the whole episode you know, was just not petting him on set. That that was definitely the hardest part because you just want to go up and like, it's this beautiful, amazing dog and this creature and you want to connect with them and you can't because he's working and he's concentrating and same way you wouldn't go up and bother an actor. (laughs) Can I ask another uh, slightly more detailed question about the direction? So, so this is very complicated. Like every shot of this thing is very complicated. It's not like you, you know, you light the room, you position the actors, you run the scene, and then you just do it till it's right. Like, there's people, there's, like, multiple trainers, there's, you know, peanut butter and squeaky toys and all of this stuff. So how much of this episode did you have to plan in advance, like, shot by shot? Did you storyboard it ahead of time? Did you do, like, a walkthrough with no dog? Or, you know, like, how much foresight was there? Definitely. Um, we had some extensive conversations, and um, I don't do storyboards, but I like to do floor plans from above, like, overheads. Um, so I, I floor planned out the whole thing with Ben and Katya and we had like, you know, drawings above with like a little dog and where it's pointing and where it's looking because every time it's going to turn, we have to plan it and make that happen. Um, we also, on the day we would have the trainers step through the marks. One of the trainers, Teresa would get down on all fours and walk around. Like she was the dog to help us like figure out where the dog is going or just so that she made sure she was on the same page. And it was always really fun and entertaining mm-hmm. to see her doing, doing her dog impression. Um, and I think some of the trickier sequences were also when he was, anytime he was off leash out in public mm-hmm. um, because Bodie loves chasing squirrels. <laughs> and we, <laughs> so in addition to having trainers going where he's supposed to go, there's a whole team of people just out of frame, making sure that if he sees a squirrel, they're going to like grab him and get him before he runs off chasing it. <laughs> oh my God. So there's like an entire invisible army <laughs> surrounding some of these shots. Strangely, they have to do the same thing with Nick Nolte. I, I would love to see... <laughs> I would love to see the version of the episode with all these people involved. That would be awesome. If they released yeah. kind of a that would be great. Back, back behind the scenes 
I think people yeah, get really into tracks. that. <laughs> yeah. Buddy, 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 I'm curious about um, the relationship between Bodhi and Yael Stone, who plays Beth in the show, because um, as we were saying before, this really is a love story, a really touching love story between a dog and his dog walker. And yeah. you want to have that great kind of chemistry, for lack of a better way of putting it, um, between them. So how did you how did you establish that between between the two of them? Well, right off the bat, Yael's like, really amazing and kind and she has a great energy around her and I feel like animals can sense things about people even when people can't like so he could pick up on that instantly that she's a really good egg um and then you know we put a bunch of treats in her pocket at one point so I feel like that had to help a little bit um but you know they really took to each other from the beginning and we made sure that um she was always giving him a lot of positive reinforcement was with him and they had like a pretty quick instant chemistry what are some of the techniques you used in filming the dog? I know some of the shots are kind of done in slow motion. I'm curious what you used in order to kind of bring us closer to the dog. Yeah, well, we we were thinking with the slow motion, it's almost like the slow motion honing you in on a detail, um, letting you experience a moment longer than it might seem, so you can also connect deeper with the character. Um, we were shooting on the Alexa Mini uh, that's a wonderful camera, and it helped uh, really get wonderful moments. We also chose uh, in the dream sequence to go in to use a super Baltar set, like a vintage set of lenses. They're like a little creamier look, a little bit dreamier, <laughs> and get into this like uh, romantic section. Uh, ben and Katya and I are big fans of uh, those like cheesy karaoke videos actually just karaoke in general but <laughs> also the cheesy karaoke videos and we were like oh let's bring a touch of that that's what his fantasy life is when he's imagining like how it could be when they're in love it's like the glamour uh, it's like the glamour shot yeah definitely so we were like let's mix a little bit of that in you don't show a lot of faces in this episode no. and it's not just because you decided to put the camera low like you're de deliberately not showing us the faces what what was the reasoning behind that well we what we realized is like the minute you see a face like a human being is going to look at that face first like the way the eye tracks through the image um they're gonna they're gonna look at the people first and we wanted everybody to focus in and hone in on gatsby and really just be with him on this journey and he's not just a dog in a scene he is the main character and really like forcing people to experience through him and not take cues from their owners. Like, Turner and Hooch is awesome, but you're definitely looking at Tom Hanks to figure out how the dog feels in a way. Like, right. he's helping guide the scene. So when you don't have those other people, you're really honing in and taking all your attention to look at the dog. We're using light to sculpt the image and bring the viewer's eye somewhere. Camera composition to bring the viewer's eye somewhere. The same thing if there's not another face, you're going to really look at that as your guide and your reference point and your anchor in the scene. Can you talk a little bit about the scene where Gatsby is shot in a cage, which is kind of this, that's the scene that made me cry. When the owner opens the door and he won't come out, it just broke my heart. And just how, how did you get him to stay? What did it feel like shooting that scene for you all? I think everybody was very sad about <laughs> about that. We were like, we don't want this end for him. We really wanted to, you know, it has like dark, sad lighting. It's just kind of soft. And like, it's just has that mood that everybody wants something better for him than this. 
when we were shooting the scene, the trainers put him in a stay, a hard stay. And then when we're opening it, we didn't ask him to come out. I'm like breaking the magic of it. But without that verbal cue, he'll just like stay down, you know. I was really emotionally invested in this episode, like to an extent. I I felt like I was like nine years old at certain points. It's like, why won't he he pet the dog? What's wrong with him? (laughs) (laughs) That's great. That's what we wanted. That's what we wanted the most was for the audience to really feel what he's going through and really unite with that dog. You also get a lot of mileage out of just really basic editing. Like, I, I hadn't thought about the way a character is established through editing in quite a long time. And then I saw this episode, and it's like, you could, like, what was that uh, in film school they teach you about this? The uh, the Kuleshov experiment. Yeah, with the soup. Mm-hmm. Right, where they have, like, a blank face actor, and they cut to soup. And the audience would go, the man is hungry. And they'd cut to a, yeah. a, a woman and go, the man is horny. And anything yeah. you juxtapose it with, people would intuit the meaning. And it was always the same face. And it's like, you're doing this here, but it's a dog. Yeah. <laughs> We're basically like being like, what does the audience feel when they see these other things? And then they graft it onto the dog. And that's why it's also important that we don't see these other characters who might be influencing that. I mean, it, it sounds like Bodhi was kind of an ideal actor <laughs> in a lot of ways. Uh, were there any moments or days that were particularly challenging where, you know, he didn't want to do what, what he was being asked to do? Or <laughs> Yeah, he really was, like, extremely special and perfect for this. I think the thing that was hardest for him is something that we thought would be the easiest for him. It's a shot of him hanging out the window as they first arrived to New York City and the wind is going through his hair and he's taking in the whole city. We were like, oh, dogs love putting their head out the window. This is just like what dogs want to do. And Bodhi's actually like very chill and he loves people and he he didn't really want to have his head out the window. He was just kind of like wanted to sit in the car and look at it like through the window. So we had to have one of the trainers you know, like leaning out the window behind the camera in the in the front uh, passenger seat so that he could come out the other window, which I just thought was really funny. We're driving around New York with a dog out the window and another man and people on the, on the street are like, what is happening with that window? <laughs> are there any uh, other funny, funny stories from on set? I mean, I will say that we had on backup, we were always like, well, in case, in case Bodhi doesn't do something, we had... Um, a puppet a head made that we could shoot from behind. Um, so we were like, you know, like in case he's tired or something happens, we'll at least have this like wow. dog. We can do little scrapes of the dog, you know, in the, in the foreground. And we only ended up using it, I think, once, which is actually like f- the reverse of the shot I was just talking about, looking out the the window of the car. So we had one of the producers actually <laughs> like putting the dog out, fake puppet head, out the window oh, and I'm filming so from behind it as we go across the bridge because it would have been too dangerous for the actual dog to be out the window. So that was actually so that was used in the episode. Funny. Yeah. Um, other funny stories. I think it's just mostly that uh, even after we wrapped when we were filming other high maintenance, like you can come to anyone on the set and be like, buddy, 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 peanut butter, peanut butter, peanut butter. <laughs> and everyone will just start doing it together like a weird manic chorus of <laughs> bodies. Man, Triumph is going to be pissed when he finds out another dog's taking his dog puppet away. <laughs> Maybe I wasn't supposed to talk about that. <laughs> Maybe that's a trade secret. <laughs> so Bodie, so Bodie stuck to the script. Yeah. 
Bodhi never improv- did Bodhi ever improvise, and if so, were you able to use it? Yes, and that was the thing we were saying where they it seemed like they were cyclically linked, like in the in some of the very last shots when he's deciding whether he's gonna go follow Beth or go back to his new new love. He's like st- he hesitates and he like looks another way and it's like he's really like making the decision and it was almost like he really was making the decision same thing when he's escaping from the dog park he like goes out the gate and he kind of pauses for a minute and then he like takes off running with this like enthusiasm and both of those things were improvisations (laughs) so crazy that's the best that's the best oh i just thought of one other really funny dog story if you look carefully in the episode um, when he's off leech running around in the dog park, he take he takes a fast turn around this plant and he actually like knocks into this little chihuahua oh, and yeah. sends it into a huge flip. And I, I don't know if that. you saw that in the yeah. episode, but he basically flips this chihuahua. Was <laughs> like, was that, like, oh my God. That wasn't meant yeah. to happen or was it? No, that was not meant to happen. That's so funny because in like, the episode, the owner of the chihuahua gets upset too. Yeah. So yeah, they the, just are all improving, maybe. Well, the, or it was, the chihuahua was supposed to be upset about them taking the ball. Oh, okay. Like, well, this happy accident, you know, like, we got to, like, use that. The camera department, we were just, you know, rewinding that clip and watching him flip that chihuahua again. And it was like, oh, my God. That's <laughs> so amazing. Funny. Are you going to bring Bodhi back? Could there be a yearly Bodhi episode? <laughs> I would love that. I think we have to talk to Ben and Katya about that. But I know they bring some people back sometimes, so maybe it could be true for dogs, too. Why not? You guys should really... You should do an Emmy for your consideration, Best Actor, next year for Bodie. I'm oh, not kidding. Yeah. Amazing. I don't I don't know if we're, <laughs> uh, we qualify for them, because I, I heard you have to be more than six episodes, but oh. um, maybe we can do a write-in. <laughs> <laughs> He'd definitely kill with the meet-and-greets. Yeah, right? <laughs> He's so handsome. He's very handsome. Well, thank you so much for being with us, Dammar. Yeah, thanks for having me. That's it for this week's Vulture TV podcast. Don't forget to email us your questions or comments at tvquestions at vulture.com or leave us a voicemail at 646-504-7673. The Vulture TV podcast is produced by Sam Dingman. Laura Mayer is our director of production, and Andy Bowers is our chief content officer. The Vulture TV podcast is part of the Panoply Network. I'm Gazella Mommy, and you can find me on Twitter at Gazellephant. I'm Matt Zoller Seitz, and you can find me on Twitter at Matt Zoller Seitz. And I'm Jen Cheney, and you can find me on Twitter at Cheney J. Thanks for listening. Yeah, buddy. Yeah, buddy, buddy, buddy. <laughs> peanut butter, peanut butter. <laughs>